And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Monday. That means the Middle East and Ukraine. Janice Stein is our guest. That's coming right up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. Getting close to the holidays. Well, I guess in many ways we're into the holidays now. And people are starting to head towards home. And home is Stratford for us. So we're here getting ready for um, the holiday season. Looking forward to it. But we've got lots to go this week before we get there. Uh, And today is the regular Monday. Uh, We kind of look outside, right? We're looking outside the country. We're looking at the big issues and our guest, um, as usual, is Dr. Janice Stein from the Monk School of Global Affairs, the University of Toronto. And our topics today will include both the Middle East and Ukraine. Before we get there, I just want to give you a, a sense of a little change in something that's coming up later in the week. Um, Thursday this week, the your turn. I, I want to turn it a little bit. I'm, I'm thinking of some changes that we're going to make in the new year, but this one is just for this week. Uh, Thursday, for your turn, and the random ranter. The ranter will continue with his... Hopefully, he's got the Christmas spirit, the holiday season spirit. When he joins us on Thursday, we'll we'll see what he has to say with his rant. But before we get there, I want to try something a little different. Remember, wow, some month and a half ago already, we had an incredibly successful Your Turn when we talked about Remembrance Day. And I suggested that you you write me a letter with your Remembrance Day memory. It may be something about your family, your father, your mother, your grandparents, something that they passed down about Remembrance Day and why we remember and that program was, well, it was amazing. It was quite incredible. And it provoked a lot of letters following the program with people with more memories. So I wanted to try something similar this week. So that's why I'm giving you warning and giving you a couple of days warning. What I'm looking for this week is a letter from you about, I guess, your your best or your most significant, or your most memorable holiday season memory. Christmas memory, Hanukkah memory, you name it. What is it? You tell me. Um, So I'm looking for a letter. Once again, doesn't have to be long. Remember, leave your name and where you're writing from. And I'll look for the best of those to uh, to include this this Thursday. And as a special bonus attraction, I'm thinking of this for the new year as well, but specifically for this Thursday, um, I will send a signed copy of the new book by Mark Bulgich and myself, How Canada Works. I'll sign it for you, and I'll put it in the mail for you. So that'll go to the the best letter, the one I 
the one I judged to be the most, you know, the most interesting, the best, the most significant, the whatever letter that addresses that issue, the issue of your best memory of this season. Okay, so there you go. Now you understand the stakes. Send it to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. And the winner will get a signed copy of How Canada Works. Number four on the bestseller list has been since it got it. It was released. It was immediately onto the bestseller list, which is uh, Mark and I are pretty happy about that. All right, now on to the, uh, the troubling issues of our time. It has been quite the year. We've seen Ukraine go through almost a com- its complete second year of hostilities between Russia and Ukraine after Russia invaded Ukraine. Tens of thousands have died. Tens of thousands have died. And since October 7th, we've seen thousands more dying in the Middle East as a result of the Hamas attacks of October 7th and Israel's retaliation in its invasion of Gaza. So these stories are still high on the list as for another brutal week in both regions, another brutal weekend in both regions. So as we've been doing since October 7th, Janice Stein has been with us. Ryan Stewart, if you were wondering, if you hadn't heard, is off writing his memoirs. So he's going to be gone for a while. And we're wishing him luck on, on his book. I've talked to him I, every once in a while, and you know he's pretty excited about what he's coming up with. And so are his publishers, Simon & Schuster, who are also the publishers for Mark and I in uh, our last few books. Okay, so let's bring Janice in and let's get uh, let's get into this discussion of where we are on these two conflicts as we uh, come up to a year end. Here's my conversation with Janice Stein. Janice, I want to start with this issue of the ceasefire because it, it seems, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the killing of the uh, Israeli hostages by Israeli forces, accidentally, obviously, uh, but nevertheless, their deaths seems to have increased uh, the tone and the uh, momentum behind the possibility of a ceasefire. We're not at ceasefire negotiations, but we seem to be at negotiations to begin negotiations on a ceasefire. Would that be an accurate reflection of what's happening now? You are absolutely right, Peter. Let's talk, first of all, about the domestic politics. Um the killing in uh, what you might call friendly fire, uh, which is when RDF soldiers killed these three hostages, even though they were waving white flags. Uh, That's just a game changer in terms of the domestic mood inside the country. 
you know, large, large demonstrations again in Tel Aviv, thousands and thousands of people now. And for them, it's clear every additional day of fighting puts the hostages at risk. So if you, and that pressure is much harder uh, for the government of Israel to ignore than, you know, a visit by the French foreign minister uh, at the same time calling for what she says is a sustainable ceasefire. If you ask me what a sustainable ceasefire is at this moment, frankly, I couldn't tell you. It sounds really good if you're a diplomat, uh, but I couldn't I couldn't describe to you what that looks like. But two big visits, um, one by Jake Sullivan, um, the National Security Advisor to the President, and the other by the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Brown, in which they are going, they're on their way now to Israel to hammer home that they want to see a change in the fighting. So let's talk about a ceasefire as um, a downscaling of the intensity, the withdrawal of most of Israel's troops behind the border. That's what they're asking for. But with the capacity to launch raids into Gaza um, with Hamas leaders and the tunnels as targets, that's not most people's definition of a ceasefire. Uh, but that's, in fact, what is going on between the United States and Israel right now. Uh, just to add, Peter, my hunch is that Netanyahu is going to go for broke here. Um, he is going to fight back fiercely against the United States, which he's never done before in his career. In fact, no Israeli prime minister has. And why would he do that this time? Because as soon as it appears that there's a significant lowering of intensity in the fighting, the pressure for a commission of inquiry inside the country will be irresistible. You know, the incident with the hostages, the killing of those three hostages, just fuel those flames. Um, so he's fighting for his political life. He seemed to say on over the weekend, on Saturday, I believe, he, he seemed to say that he was open for negotiations. Uh, he didn't use the he didn't use the c word. He didn't talk about a ceasefire. So he was open for negotiations. Now, I guess so because they, 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 you know there there were negotiations that he signed off on that were going on in um, in Qatar that released those first hundred hostages. Um, but do you, you don't see anything in that in in that line over the weekend of his that would lead you I, to think he may be softening somewhere. Well, let me distinguish between two sets of negotiations. One, a next round of two, which you could call a pause, which is what they called it last time. Not the same as a ceasefire, but negotiations with Hamas indirectly through the Qataris and the Egyptians um, to get a, one more big round of hostages out in exchange for a much larger number of Palestinian prisoners, which the Israeli public is prepared for. He and his government are not, but the Israeli public is prepared to make that deal. He would do that in order to reduce the domestic political pressure. 
but a ceasefire, a regal scaling down of the intensity of fighting, which is what the United States wants. Uh, that's a, a request of a different order, uh, and that would put him at risk. There's no question about it. Even the first might put him at risk, Peter, because the government is so fragile with those two extremist right-wing parties who might kick up a tremendous fuss about releasing thousands of Palestinian prisoners. That may be enough to break apart his government. But they, too, let's just understand, this is such a dysfunctional it's the only word for it. Dysfunctional and fragile government that as much as uh, some of those small extremist parties would like to break away, if they bring down the coalition, they have no political future either. You, you're clearly making it sound like as far as Netanyahu is concerned, it's all about him. It's yep. all about him. It, it's his, yep. ag- his agenda, his personal agenda that is directing his um, attitude towards this war. Yes, that is what I think. And there's nobody to say, you can't do this. Well, there is. So let's talk about this five-person war cabinet, right? Mm -hmm. Because the larger cabinet, they're locked into the same logic that if they break apart the government, they all lose because there's no path back for any of them to power. So you look at this emergency war cabinet, three of them are Netanyahu people, in a sense. Uh, Ron Dermer, who's a former ambassador to the United States, was appointed by Netanyahu. Uh, Netanyahu himself and the Minister of Defense, no friend of Netanyahu. They were fighting fiercely a few months ago, but nevertheless, um, a member of that government. And then you have two others. Um, Benny Gantz, who leads the largest opposition party and is way ahead in the polls now. All the polls converge here. Nobody's arguing. Were an election to be called. And if a government falls in Israel, it takes about six months until the next election. And the current prime minister stays as a caretaker. But were an election to be called, Gantz's party would get more than twice as many seats as Netanyahu's. That's a huge lead. He has an incentive to break this up before too long. Um, And a former chief of staff whose son and nephew um, have been killed in war. Um, If either one of those (laughs) walk away from the table, uh, that would break up the war cabinet. That would probably be enough to ignite this. But they joined that cabinet because they said there was an, a security emergency war and they didn't want to play politics during the war. How long does that last, Peter? Right. Especially if Netanyahu defies the United States. There has never been a government in Israel that didn't understand. That was the one thing they could not do. They could push they could obstruct, they could drag their feet, they could delay, but they couldn't defy. And they're defying now? He will. I think he will. Because his back is to the wall politically. Let me ask yeah. you, um, you, uh, you know who I'm talking about when I talk about William Cohen. In fact, you've probably met him. Um, it was the, uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense for Bill Clinton. Right. 
he was a Republican, so he was an interesting choice by Clinton to to uh, try to show a, a nonpartisan attitude towards the defense portfolio and bringing in a, a Republican. I was watching him the other day. He's still pretty active and in, uh, in terms of giving his opinions. And his opinion, and I, I, I wonder whether you think this in any way would work. I mean, it sounded pretty straightforward and simple, um, but nobody's grabbing onto it. He's saying what Netanyahu should do, what Israel should do, uh, is say, we're prepared to have a ceasefire right now, today, if you release the hostages. Yeah. No other conditions, that's it. Ceasefire, we get the hostages back. Uh, that that would, for Israel, would tend to bring some of that public opinion, which has been running against Israel from the outside world, um, back into the Israeli tent, perhaps, um, and it would end the fighting and end the killing. Why doesn't that happen? You know, that is, frankly, such a smart suggestion that has been made by several people. William Cohn is one, but there are people inside Israel that have made that suggestion. And my sense, it's it's smart for all the reasons um, that William Cohn suggests, but for one other as well. Not fully clear that Hamas would accept that offer right now. Um, But then it would be their problem. Then, but then the fighting becomes their problem, and it makes it clear to Palestinians in Gaza that the continuation of the fighting is a result of Hamas's refusal to come to the table and accept that. Now, just so we understand, Peter, that would leave the IDF in place. Ceasefire <laughs> can be of two kinds. You have a ceasefire where the soldiers stay in place, they just withdraw to more defensive positions, or a ceasefire where you withdraw to the lines before the war started. You notice when William Cohen was talking, he didn't specify which which kind of ceasefire it would be, but they're very different. But the reason I say that, because the Israelis have been fishing now for 10 days to get these hostage negotiations started, They've tried through the Qataris, and maybe we should talk about Hamas a little later, about yeah. why that might be, and they were not met with success. Um, there's less interest now, it appears, by Hamas than there was for that first round. It does, uh, Hamas doesn't speak with one voice, right? No. No. Well, you know, that's why I'm saying there's politics all over right now, Peter. You know, when we talk about war, we think this is some neat, there's a neat separation between the military strategists and the politicians. It's never like that. And you can literally see it, the domestic politics inside Israel, inside the United States, where the political stakes are just huge for the Biden administration. Um, as we move into primary season. And of course, inside Hamas too. So there's two big wings of Hamas. Um, There's the political wing that where the leadership is largely, although not not exclusively in Qatar. And here's an interesting story that came out of Um, Gaza and other Arab sources and has not really gotten a lot of play. So 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking the story, but I don't have any good evidence. Let me put it that way. That some, some of the most significant members of the political leadership left Qatar this week because the Qataris said to them, we can no longer guarantee your safety. <laughs> now, we, we, we could make a lot of that story, and it could be that the Qataris are increasingly worried about their exposure if they have senior Hamas leaders. It could be that Qataris are picking up threats to their safety. It could be any of those. Um, and the rumors in the Arab press were that they had gone to Algiers, some of them. Now, if that's true, it's going to be a lot harder to communicate um, because it's going to be more difficult, the communication between the political wing, wherever they are now, and the military wing on the ground in the tunnels in Gaza will just be harder for people working on a ceasefire. So, you know, we're having a kind of one-sided conversation right now. Right. You well, see what I'm saying? Let me yeah. let me play out your um, rumor. Although I guess it's a little more than probably a little more than a rumor. But if, if that's in fact what the Hamas leadership, who had been in Qatar, had have been told, I mean, uh, the odds on is that it's Mossad is tracking them, right? I mean, they have a history of a worldwide reach, and they don't care yeah. what anybody says. And yeah. once they've determined that they're going to take people out, they take them out. Um, and we've seen enough evidence of that over the years. Uh, what would happen if that happened? Well, you know, again, so who's warned against that? Who's warned against that in the most explicit terms? Not the United States. On the contrary, Jake Sullivan. I really sat up in my chair when I heard him say this. Jake Sullivan said, Yael Sinwar has a target on his back. And who is that again? Jake Sullivan, the no, no, president. No, no, no. Who, who has the target? Oh, sorry. Yael Sinwar, who is the most important leader of the military faction inside Gaza. He's both, he crosses the line almost between the political and the military um, he's there's a lot known about him, and why is he so well known? Because he spent um 18 years in jail, in prison in Israel, and there's um detailed records of his interrogations while he was in Israel. And was very, again, interesting set of conversations released this week by a former interrogator who talked about how you interrogate prisoners and how you need to make, you build trust with them. Otherwise they don't tell you anything. And it's only when you build the relationship. And he built that uh, with Yaya Sinwar when he was um, in an Israeli prison. And the story he tells um, of how Sinwar described to him how he forced uh, somebody in Hamas that he considered disloyal, disloyal to kill his, his own brother and bury his brother before Sinwar himself killed the remaining brother. Um, the, and the, the analysis really was, this was somebody who, I'm not going to use 
any psychological terms here because I have no qualifications to make that kind of diagnosis. But he said this was the most chilling conversation he'd ever had. There was no remorse. Uh, there was just a cold-blooded description of what he did and an unrelenting commitment to come back um, whenever he was released. Um, an attack. And that's that's the story, I think, that most intelligence agencies who have had any contact uh, with Sinwar will tell about him. He's by far the most important player. He's the one, by the way, that the host, that came the first day, October the 8th, to the tunnels inside Gaza and met with some of the hostages. And one in particular um, who long been active in the peace movement. She was 85 years old. She clearly um, was fearless. And she confronted him and asked him, how could you do this? to the member those you know the members of the peace activist community um that lived on the border because that's who those people were and she said he never flinched so he's the one who's making the critical decision and he's the one who said this will happen again this will happen again this is a rehearsal this will happen again so i think it's fair to say that there's no political solution that would satisfy Sinwar. Uh, you're not finding a way out for us here, Janice. No. <laughs> You've got no. both sides. No. Both sides no. refusing to, to, uh, to make any attempt to, uh, to end this. Yeah, I, and I certainly don't, you know, I, they're very different and I don't draw equivalencies. And if I did, I would... Yeah, way more mail than I did after last week, Peter, uh, for sure. But there's no question that Sinwar and the two or three other most important military leaders that are still in Gaza do not have any, whatever they agree to, it will be temporary. They were they are not about to announce violence um, uh, in order to get to a long-term political solution. That's not true of the political leadership. There are many in the political leadership who talk who who talk about a very very long extended truce, um, and who even talk about rejoining um, the the broader PLO structure, which made a commitment to recognize Israel uh, within the 1967 borders. There are certainly members of Hamas political leaders who talk that way, and one just made that kind of statement even a week ago. But they are really divided. Netanyahu, on the other hand, also has, I think, no interest in stopping the fighting. None. Because, and I, you were absolutely right, because I believe he is right now wholly fixated on his own political survival and what is good for him as distinct from what is in the national interest. Okay, last point on uh, on the Mideast story. Uh, for the, the last two weeks, you felt that the pressure from the United States was going to be enough within a few weeks yeah. to bring this to some, um, some at least temporary conclusion. Uh, so, 
You so the timelines? <laughs> yeah. I got the timelines right if you listen to the Americans who are there right now, right? right. They, they're, they're working on the same timelines. They're a little more, you know, they'll say January, early January, and um, it, I, I think Netanyahu will drag his feet, will drag this out. Uh, as long as he can. Can that add an extra few weeks to this? Ultimately, I think the presence of those two others, two former chiefs of the defense staff, are going to matter. He cannot afford to lose them from the war cabinet. So his attempt may elongate this another couple of weeks, Peter, but I still do not believe it is possible for Israel to stand up against this kind of pressure. And let's have the third bit of politics here. Before the primaries, Biden is pretty clear. He and his team want this stop before American voters start to vote in the primaries. Well, you better hurry up then. Better hurry up. That's right. All right. We're... Um we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we want to uh, check in on uh, Ukraine. We talk about politics. Another yeah. like, bizarre week uh, for Zelensky. So let's uh, let's take that break, and we'll come back with that in just a moment. back. Peter Mansbridge here with Janice Stein from the uh, University of Toronto, the Monk School. Political analyst, Middle East analyst, conflict management expert. She's got it all. You're listening on Sirius um, XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. All right, I want to shift to uh, Ukraine. And uh, as I said a moment ago, it, it was another kind of bizarre week. You have Zelensky, making his latest sort of cap-in-hand visit to Washington, and where in the past he was welcomed and treated like a hero. This time it was very different. It, it just didn't feel in any way welcoming, even with, with Biden, who was, you know, his, uh, he and his people are obviously pushing for, is there a way to kind of bring this thing uh, to some form of a, of resolution in some kind of discussions um, between Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, and then then the whole situation in Congress where he's he needs a, a guarantee in terms of uh, future resources and money. Uh, he didn't get it. He got some money, but he didn't get what he was looking for. And so uh, back he went to Ukraine. Um, the, you know, and the war continues, and it's very much a drone war, at least it has been for the last couple of days from, from both sides. Uh, but it, when you looked at that situation last week uh, in Washington, what did you see? You know, I was struck, I think, as you were, Peter, it, it, it was sad, actually, right? Um, uh, Zelensky looked exhausted. Um, and going through the motions, he he's an astute politician. He understood very well he had not broken the deadlock um, with the Republican House. Frankly, Biden looked exhausted um, in the press conference, and that's worrying to see as well. 
He his voice was tired. He just looked exhausted. Uh, and there was a sense that there was an uphill struggle. His commitment is there, but this was an uphill struggle. And you're right, Zelensky went home without a great deal to show for it. Um, and the war um, is 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 a I think is a killing stalemate. Let me put it to you that way. It's much worse than World War One. If we could just talk about the war for one minute, Peter, because in World War One, you've seen I've seen all the World War One movies where you could dig a deep trench. And most of the soldiers were in the trenches on either side. And only when you came out of the trenches did you get killed. That's not what is happening on the front lines between Russia and Ukraine. These are killing grounds. Uh, the, the number of military deaths, you know, uh, in in Kherson, which is just over the major river, uh, the Dnipro River, where Ukrainian forces, and this is the hardest thing for military to do, an amphibious crossing where you're out in the open and you're sitting ducks for the other side. They have crossed and they've landed several small clusters of Ukrainian forces, Virtually everybody killed. They are replaced. Virtually everybody killed. They are replaced. And why are they doing this? They're doing this really to divert Russian forces from their attacks further up the line. They're also pulling in Russian forces and a large and large numbers of Russian forces are getting killed. But a, a war in which you have this this high level of military deaths is ultimately not a war that Ukraine can win uh, because it just has fewer men to put on the front line. And already we're getting reports out of Ukraine that young men are being picked up off the street and forcibly recruited into the Ukrainian army. So... To say this is approaching a desperate situation for Ukraine, it is. There's no question. Two, two possible rays of hope here. <laughs> One, the Pentagon has enough in the queue to keep on supplying for several months. The money was committed earlier, but there's enough in the queue at lower rates, but nevertheless, they will be able to. And secondly, and to round out the political circle here, there are heated talks going on as we speak in Washington about an omnibus bill, A, to Ukraine, which is Biden's priority, A, to Israel, in exchange for much bigger compromises on securing the U.S. border and on immigration and on conditions for asylum than the Biden people wanted to make. He will antagonize the, if he makes these concessions, he will antagonize the progressive wing of his own party. And there are big costs as you go into an election year. You know, it, it is really stunning, Peter, to see the extent. We're not used to this in Canada. You you tell me when we last fought an election over foreign policy right. in Canada. Yeah. Free trade, probably, Right. Uh, is the last time we might have. Um, but in the United States right now, foreign policy issues are penetrating right into the heart of the political process. They're politicized. Biden goes one way. He fractures his own party. 
right before primary start. And if he goes another way, he can't meet his obligations uh, and fulfill his commitment to Ukraine. Very tough. You got politics playing a role in both these conflicts now, yeah. right? Like yeah. uh, more yeah. than we've domestic seen. Politics. Yeah, domestic politics. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Zelensky was, was pushed on, uh, I think it was in the news conference he had, he was pushed on the issue of whether he's prepared to sit down and talk about, um, uh, about territory with the, uh, and what he uh, could agree to uh, allow the Russians to, to hold on to that they'd, they'd taken in the past couple of years. Um, and he was adamant, and it wasn't just a kind of a flip answer. It was like heavy duty. I'm not giving up an inch is basically what he said. Um, now I suppose he has to say that, but he sounded like a man convinced of his words that he wouldn't ever sit down and talk that way. He does have to say that he really does believe it except for Crimea. There is, he, he is flexible on Crimea. There's no question he is. He just can't say so in public, but he's flexible on Crimea, but he too, has enraged public to deal with. There is a lot of talks about an election in Ukraine in 2024. He would, there's no question his political support would take a huge hit were there to be a discussion uh, right now before an election about making concessions of part uh, of Eastern Ukraine to the Russians. And that's what he's protecting against. It's also interesting, you know, we heard Putin at that famous press conference. This was the most confident that Putin's been. And that's partly why he agreed to take questions from journalists that come in over the phone in a really structured way that are vetted before. Let's not kid ourselves. But nevertheless, he did. And each uh, just as much as zero traction with Zelensky right now, less than zero traction with Putin, who said, no, 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 we ha- we're going to take more territory in eastern Ukraine, and that will become part of Russia permanently, and it's never going back. And actually, the, lo- the rest of Ukraine, what remains the west of Ukraine, probably will be integrated um, into another state. In other words, he was saying he does not see an independent, sovereign Ukraine in the future. He might have felt differently last year when his forces were pushed back. So here's the irony, and this is one of the things we know. When you're losing, you're more open to ceasefire and concessions. <laughs> when you're winning, you forget about it very quickly. And your rhetoric changes very fast. So how do you get both parties to the same conference to feel they're losing at the same time? That's when these you, wars You'd think 300,000 casualties on the Russian side would, would tell you, you know, yeah. Yeah. I may not be losing, but I'm getting hammered here. And, yeah. uh, and the people are going to rise up. But, you know... Russia's history, the Soviet Union's history, uh, accepts incredible losses. It's, That's right. it's quite something. That's right. Uh, okay, uh, this is all too depressing for uh, for a time where we're all going to try and take some holidays here. Um, give us something 
good to think of. You, well, told, I, you whispered to me that you had a story. Tell me a story. I did. I did. I wanted to tell you about this story that I just saw a couple of days ago, which went viral in Iran about a man, I'm guessing, in his 60s, who was standing out in northern, northern Iran, who was standing out in front of his stall in the marketplace and started to dance uh, and a group of young men around them and somebody photographed it. Um, and it was a folk song with a great beat uh, and it just went viral um, all over Iran. And the song has a chorus, oh, oh, oh. And you know, literally all over Iran, thousands and thousands of people dancing as the latest form of protest. Well, the Iranian secret police come and arrest this man and delete the video and accuse him of treason. There was such an outcry. There was such an outcry. And the number of dancing videos, men with men, men and women, reached such a point that the Iranian police backed down. He was released. His website went up with his great dance that he was doing. Um, and there you are, the human spirit. The human spirit. The human spirit. Oh, that's a nice story. And I, uh, let's great. try. Let's try to think of that one for the next little while. After all the other things we've talked about of of late and uh, and today. Um, sure Jan made me smile, Peter. It's called O O O. If you look O O O in Iran, you can find the dance. Too much fun. <laughs> okay, we'll find it, and so will our listeners. I know. Um, thanks, Janice. Janice will be back in two weeks' time, and we'll uh, we'll bring everybody up to date on on where we are in these stories. But in the in the meantime, it's O O O. Let's dance. <laughs> Right. That's right. And a Merry Christmas to you, Peter, and to all your listeners. Have a great holiday. Bye-bye now. Dr. Janice Stein uh, with us as she has been uh, every week since October 7th. And um, if you're looking for that video, it's not hard to find. Um, you can go to your search engine, you know, if you use Google, whatever. Just, um, just, uh, just type in... Iranian man dancing, and you'll get it. His name is uh, Sadek Bana Motajadeh. He's seventy years old, and it's a it's a small market in Rasht, Iran. And as as the New York Times says, it's you know it's grown into a symbol of disobedience and a demand for freedom and happiness. Isn't that something we all want? Happiness. That's why he's dancing. It is a remarkable video and a remarkable moment, and I'm glad Janice told us about it if, if you hadn't heard about it before. But if you want to look at it and if you want to maybe feel a little good in, in difficult times, you'll find it in that video. All right. Uh, a quick reminder. Contest for Thursday. Get your... Uh, Get your, your holiday thought in, something that's made a difference to you in your life. Could be a memory from childhood. Could be a memory that's been passed down by, you know, parents, grandparents. Whatever it may be, I'd love to hear about it. Name and location, please. They're important. 
so I'll go through those and I'll, you know, I'll, uh, I'll pick out what I consider to be, uh, well, what moves me in some fashion. And then we'll pick the overall winner. And the overall winner uh, will get a signed copy of How Canada Works, the new book by uh, Mark Bulgich and myself uh, that's doing quite well out there. Um, you can always go to your local bookstore or you can order online uh, to pick up your copy. Um, and if you do get it, and if you already have it, and if you're already reading it, I hope you're enjoying it. It gives a real reflection of some of the jobs in Canada that we all benefit from those who do those jobs. So it's their stories. It's not my story. It's not Mark's story. It's their stories. And it's in their voice. So um, I hope you get a chance to uh, to grab a copy. It had a fantastic review uh, by Jamie Portman, um, who uh, writes for the Post Media chain. And it was uh, uh, in most of the Post Media uh, newspapers right across the country over the weekend. So if you're looking to get some understanding of the book, uh, just look that up. Jamie Portman and his uh, book review in Post Media. You can, you can search it online. Uh, but it was it was very kind of Jamie to write those nice things about the book. Um, okay, that's going to wrap it up. Uh, tomorrow, we, I <laughs> I have this pile of n bit possibilities, and we're going to give those because some of those are, are are nice. Well, they help get you ready for the holidays on a number of versions, and one of the ones you know you know one of the perils of 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 the big family dinners around the holidays, you end up getting in arguments. <laughs> I've got a great end bit on how to ensure that you don't get in arguments at family dinners over over the holidays. So we'll look at that and a, and, and a bunch of others. Um, so it'll be an end bit special tomorrow. Wednesday, it's Bruce's last shot at Smoke, Maris, and Truth, as Bruce has got so many other obligations uh, work-wise that he's had to beg off the um, the Wednesday episode, and he will be uh, with us, obviously, on Friday still with a good talk with Chantel. Uh, there is a restructuring of the uh, what will be a four-day week for, uh, for uh, the bridge uh, coming up in the new year. Um, and, uh, you know, the old man's getting old here. Got to reduce from five days to four-day weeks. And uh, but still looking forward uh, to every moment uh, with the opportunity to talk to you about various things. So that's it for this day. Uh, Thursday, the special I told you about. Friday, the annual year-end good talk with Chantel and Bruce. Then we're taking next week off. There'll be a best-of series, encore editions of uh, the Bridge through the uh, the main holiday week. Then we're back at it as of January second. That's a Tuesday, the day after New Year's Day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great evening. Talk to you again in uh, (laughs) 24 hours. 